Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Migration 2.0 podcast. This is the fifth episode of our series, and it's a collaboration between the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung Cyprus office uh, and Project Phoenix, whom I work for, uh, which is a European NGO and social enterprise based in Cyprus that works towards systems change and migrant inclusion. In the Migration 2.0 podcast, we explore issues related to migration through multiple lenses. By amplifying migrant voices and shedding light on migration issues, we hope to promote inclusion, highlight the diversity of migrant experiences, and humanize migrants by including and centralizing their voices in the discourse. We do this, of course, by looking at migration in Cyprus uh, and the broader Middle East. In today's episode, my colleague Sarah Morsheimer, who is our research lead, will be speaking with an old friend and collaborator, Emmanuel Achiri, uh, who is the co-founder of the very important student body Voice or Voices of International Students Cyprus. Emmanuel is a PhD candidate currently at Eastern Medicine Mediterranean University in Famagusta and also a co-founder of the Stop the War in Cameroon Coalition think tank for young researchers working on solutions to end the war in Cameroon. Emmanuel has been based in the breakaway northern part of Cyprus for the last seven years uh, as a student, as an educator himself. And today we will be discussing the reality that international students and immigrants face in the north Cyprus. And of course, discussing the very important work um, that he and his team at Voice uh, have done in assisting students and migrants in the north. We'll also use this opportunity to sort of pick Emmanuel's brain about the broader issues that uh, you know affect students, um, this, but some of the particular issues about how they came to be in Cyprus in the first place, uh, and then some perhaps more interesting questions about Emmanuel's own doctoral work on, on refugee and immigration issues in Africa. So over to you, Sarah and Emmanuel, and thank you for having, being with us this morning. Thanks so much for the introduction, Rishab, and uh, welcome, Emmanuel. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Um, so uh, I guess before we begin diving in, talking about um, Voice Cyprus, can you tell us a bit more about the migration situation uh, north of the Green Line and what is currently happening there? Thank you, uh, Rishab and Sarah, for having me on your podcast. And I think this is uh, it's a brilliant idea that we involve in this um, conversation or this discussion about migration. Um, a lot of the time when issues regarding migration or specifically refugees, it's never really the refugees and the migrants talking for themselves, but all the people talking on their behalf. And so I think that this is a brilliant podcast allowing migrants to um, to share their own stories by themselves. With regards to the specific question of migration in um the northern part of, of Cyprus is quite an interesting issue and a complex one in the sense that, of course, we do have, I would say, some form of illegal migration, I would even say trafficking to a very large extent, but it's never really clear-cut in the sense that while we have, the, I would say, the legal form of migration, if there is such a thing as legal migration in any case, where you have you know, students and workers coming in their numbers, you know, we have over maybe 100,000 international students here, including Turkish um, students, I mean, students from Turkey. So we have this, you call the legal uh, migration um, route, including, of course, expatriates who are coming to work here. 
especially those who work in the um, entertainment industry, whether it's the casinos and the hotels. And as you know, as I say, dancers in, in quotes, of course, we do know that they do not only dance. It's quite an interesting one because even in these forms of what we would term as legal migration, there is still a lot of trafficking taking place in the sense that you have these agents, you know, I'll speak from the perspective of a student, all right, or someone who deals with student issues more. You have these agents, right, who work on... Um, or will say that they are bringing students to the northern part of Cyprus to come and study in the universities here, over 21 um, universities. But unfortunately, um, some of the students are misled. They are told lies about the northern part of Cyprus. They are told, for example, that if you, in fact, in some cases, it's not even referred to as the northern part of Cyprus. It's referred to as Cyprus. Or you're coming to Cyprus. It is found um, within the European Union. You're going to have... You can leave and travel to any other European country without necessarily getting a visa and so on and so forth. Um, you can get jobs here. The life standard is not as expensive as you um, as in other European countries. Um, so all of these lies are told to those prospective students, but of course not all agents, but there is a there's a large chunk or large portion of these agents who do this. And these um Prospective students come here with these false ideas um, or these false images, and then when they come, they realize that they, they find themselves stuck, you know, in in um, a country that is is recognized only by Turkey, in a country with a very complex political situation, and then they find that there are no jobs. Some of them, as we have received um, some cases in Boy Cyprus, some of the students borrow money from families and from others or even from the agents sometimes to pay their fees to come and when they come then their passports are, are, are seized by these agents or with or, or held by these agents and they have to work in some cases the um the female or those fem female students have to um do some kind of um i'll say sex level and then of course you have male students involved in um in drugs and also um you know working in in labor conditions which are which are inhumane um but of course that is not to say that all the universities or all the universities in the northern part of Cyprus are basically um, engaging in this or that all the agents are bad. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in, even when we refer to, even when we say legal migration, there is a lot of trafficking that takes place, which goes under the radar because um, it's difficult to to call it, or at least I don't think it's difficult, but of course for the authorities, sometimes it's difficult to consider this as trafficking. But I mean, it takes a lot of boxes that you um, that one would refer to as 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 trafficking in the in the ideal sense of of the word. So of course, why we have legal migration and illegal migration, for lack of a better term, of course even the legal migration is very questionable. And of course, you have um, instances where people come here and then try to you know. Uh, um, cross the border um, to the south of Cyprus. So um, I think that's a kind of a general overview about the situation. Um, yeah, I know currently that some of the universities and even the administration of the northern part of Cyprus is taking some measures to kind of like curb this. For example, they started asking students from some specific countries to a certain amount of, of, of money um, into the school they would be registering into so that at least, I mean, a higher sum of, of, of money than was requested in the past so that those who used to come for um, 
reasons other than studying, maybe to cross the South or to work illegally, find it more difficult. But the problem is, and I think last week, Voice Cyprus criticized the decision by one of the universities to increase um, the money that students from two specific countries were supposed to pay. That is Cameroon and Nigeria. And the criticism was, what is the evidence you're using to, to put this restriction on these two countries? Is it just a case of say, racism or stereotype or stereotyping, or is there actual evidence showing that students who come from this country are more likely maybe trafficked or um, are coming for reasons other than, 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 than education? But of course, so far, we've not had any response. So I would say that's kind of like an overall um, view of the status of of, of, of of migration here. Although I would say as well that um, a lot of the time students do come here and then when they graduate, some of them do not want to go back to their countries. And I don't think that the, the institutions and the administration is doing enough here to integrate these graduates or these migrants into the economy. In fact, there is um, a pushback um, from the local population, but also from the administration. It's kind of like a system where just come study and then you go back to your country. Just bring us the money and give us this money. And when you're done, you go back to your country. And so there are no real efforts to integrate migrants into the society um, at, at, at many different levels. And I think this is one of the things that Voice Cyprus has been advocating for, um, that at least student migrants, those that we deal with, are integrated into the society. And even after they graduate, are given employment opportunities. Thank you so much. I think that was a really great overview, both of the migration situation, but also specifically the situation um, for, for international students um, in the North. So could you tell us a little bit more about Voice and um, how it started and, and what the organization does? Voice Hypers, I mean, it was um, founded. I was one of the co-founders in February of 2018. We are four co-founders, uh, myself, um, Chiri Emmanuel, there is Yinka um, Oladapo from Nigeria and Ezine Fevo as well from Nigeria. And then um, Fiona Kavakure from Burundi. And the origins of Boy Cyprus, I think it was quite, I would not say um, um, unique, but it was out of, of, of I would say, desperation because um, prior to um, February of 2018, in 2017, the Teachers Union of the Eastern Mediterranean University had organized a conference to talk about the problems international students were facing. And some of the co-founders like myself and Fiona um, were speakers at this conference. But I think that what really Struck, um, struck us during this conference was that so many international students attended and then we could see and listen firsthand to the plight of international students. And, you know, as international students ourselves, sometimes, you know, we felt isolated. We felt problems were unique to us. But during the conference, we could see that these problems were quite general too. Of course, there were issues that were unique, but there were issues like racism, labor exploitation, lack of mental health support. Um, some of the other issues, voice Cyprus is, is, I mean, general discrimination as well within the school campuses and outside of the school campuses as well. We realized these were common issues that international students were facing. And so we we, we started having conversations um, about establishing some form of um, a network, a platform. And our initial intention was to have a similar kind of conference at least two or three times each year where students could come, into, um, come as a group and discuss about the issues they were facing. But shortly after the conference, because the, the conference, I think, was like end of November 2017. In January 2018, a Nigerian student was brutally murdered. Um, of course, there was some, it was a drug-related issue. But our complaint as international students at that point in time was, was the reaction of, of the school, but also the reaction of 
of the institutions and especially the media. The media at that time was kind of, I wouldn't say justifying um, this murder, but we're downplaying it in the sense that, oh no, he was involved in drugs, and it was, uh, I mean, it was cold-blooded murder because this 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 student was was beaten to to death by a couple of of um, Turkish Cypriot youth, and our, our our primary concern was that if we did not start speaking on behalf of ourselves, these kind of situations were going to continue. And so rather than going ahead with the initial idea of having these conferences every um, two or three times every year, we decided to establish a platform which was meant to um, speak up for the problems um, or speak up about the issues students were, were, were facing. And that is why we termed it Voices of International Students. But a couple of months, like two, three months into um, the establishment of Voice Cyprus, we realized that just speaking up about these issues was not going to solve the issues. So we decided to take a more proactive um, form of advocacy. And that was like, not that was about not only speaking up about the issues students were facing, but actively um, trying to integrate the international student community within the local community by by um, um, building bridges, but also um, lobbying our universities, but state institutions as well to um, protect the existing rights of international students, protect and safeguard the existing rights of international students, but also gain new rights that we previously um, did not have access to. So better access to healthcare and better access to mental health care, improvement in labor um, and working conditions, uh, more protection for um women, girls, especially international students, tackling racism and other forms of discrimination um, within the society. And um, we were really quite um, surprised by um, the turnout, the number of students who, as soon as Voice Cyprus was launched, you know, decided to, to join the organization. We've been existing now for three years and we are structured in um, so we have departments and committees. The departments um, deal with the day-to-day -day running of Voice Cyprus. So we have the Department of of finance, we have the research department, which is headed by Samuel Akoni, which you all know. We have the human resource department in charge of recruiting new members into Voice Cyprus. We have social responsibility department because we believe that as international students, we also have a responsibility towards, we have duties and responsibilities towards the local community. Of course, we have the media department in charge of of you know the media department is that is that um, I'll say the forum that we use to you know to to share our ideas out there. They are kind of like I'll say the voice of voice apps, you know, the designs, the videos, and so on and so forth. And then we have five committees. Now the five committees are basically because we had done um, a couple of surveys before establishing voice, but even after voice to kind of have an idea of you know the the principal issues that students were facing. And so these committees are kind of like overarching issues that um, international students face. And so the first is the institution, um, the, the committee dealing with um, institutional discrimination, which deals with um, all forms of discrimination that has been institutionalized within our universities, but the community at large. We have the committee dealing with mental health issues and drug abuse because we feel that this is something that is quite serious. In fact, I think just last week, I was I unfortunately witnessed an incident of a student who was really, I think was, I would say, I think he had over, overdosed or so high that he fell from the sixth floor of his building. And I was actually in that building visiting a friend. And we were one of the first persons at the scene, and you know he he was he was 
doing drugs and he fell down to his death and his two friends that the two friends he was i think i don't know whether what they were smoking or taking i really don't know were so high that you know when we asked them what happened you know they couldn't even make statements like they were so high the eyes were so red so druggy they could not even make they could not even walk properly and so there is really a drug epidemic um within the student community and that's why that com um, um committee exists of course we have the committee dealing with gender related issues um, and sexual violence and sexual abuse but also the rights of the lgbti um, plus community we have the um, committee dealing with um, working conditions and we have the committee dealing with issues relating to housing. So that is how we are structured. Currently, we have about 120 active volunteers. And over the last three weeks, we have been doing um, training, um, which um, myself and the current president of Voice Cyprus, Ashraf Salim, um, have been coordinating. So we've been training um, the new volunteers for Voice Cyprus. So we have this group of volunteers who are active and then in terms of membership we have a membership um somewhere around 12,000 14,000 international students at this given um, um point in time of course we do work with local um, civil society organizations and think tanks both here in the northern part of cyprus as um and in um, the south of cyprus like um project phoenix and then in the northern part we work with the refugee rights association queer cyprus the bar association and many others as well in terms of international partners we've been working very closely with the growth civic um, office which represents the european union here as well as had contact directly with the dg reform committee of the european union and of course we have a very close relationship with the u.s um, embassy and in fact even just got a grant from washington um, to to start building human rights to start documenting human rights abuses in the northern part of Cyprus. Unfortunately, we are not legally registered because the legislation in the northern part of Cyprus does not allow for um, organizations formed by foreigners to be legally registered, a process that we are currently um, fighting against. In fact, we've consulted um, a lawyer who is currently um, um, building a case against against the administration um, for us because we believe it, um, it restricts our freedom of association. And so we have this case that is being built, but at the same time, um, we are exploring options to, to legally register within the European Union. And um, we've had a couple of um, exchanges now with um, support groups in, in Estonia who would um, help us register before the end of 2021. So that's kind of like, I think, the general idea behind um, Voice Cyprus and what we do. Thank you. So you mentioned the, the committees dealing with some of the, the problems that international students face. But um, I wonder if you could maybe just elaborate on, um, you know, some of the larger challenges that students face, um, you know, both from your perspective as, as an international student yourself. All right. Um, I think that, well, there are some unique issues that students from particular countries face, but I think that um, generally I would say that the primary issue which um, students face is a lack of institutional support from the universities, but also from the administration in the sense that it's almost as though um, it's kind of like a purely market market-based um, relationship. 
You come here, you pay your fees, we transfer knowledge to you and the end to that. There is no, I would say a lot of the time, there is no support from the institutions in many ways when students have problems. In fact, a lot of the time, Voice Cyprus has to write to directorates of these universities and try to sometimes use our contacts within the administration to pressure the universities to do what they are normally supposed to do. An example would be um, during the first lockdown and we, we started writing to the universities, but you have to provide some kind of support to the students who are trapped here. And, and a lot of the universities needed to be pressured. In fact, Voice Cyprus had to start, I would say, a national campaign of raising funds to support students. And it was only after that and publicly criticizing the universities that a lot of them started providing support to students and they were providing the support a lot of the time, I would say not out of goodwill, at least some of the universities, but for publicity. So, for example, um, when they give packages to students, they would say, you see what we are doing, we love our students and so on and so forth. And you check the packages, maybe um, a couple of, you know, of tomatoes and oil and rice and that's it. And this student is supposed to survive through the entirety of three, four months of lockdown. And this was during the first lockdown. Um, but also the lack of institutional support in terms of, of, of mental health support, in terms of integration within the society. As I said, it's kind of like a market-based um, relationship, and which is something that we believe needs to change. Um, of course, there's a lot of racism and discrimination within um, the society. The last survey, which we did in, I think, um, 2020 on racism, I think about 80 85 or 86%, if I remember correctly, of respondents, and we had over 600 um, respondents said they had experienced one form of racism or the other. And this is not only peculiar to, to, to African or Black students, this was more about even students who are from Asiatic countries. Um, of course, we have the issue of, of housing, which is very problematic. In fact, in the northern part of Cyprus, there is no department that deals specifically with housing. And in fact, the legislation on housing doesn't really exist. There is the general rules um, regarding land, but there is no specific um, legislation dealing with housing or department. And this is something we've been lobbying for for a couple of, for I think, one, two years now. In fact, we've even proposed that a committee should be set up, made up of, you know, on public officials, representatives of students and, and the university and a representative from the university to regulate issues regarding housing because it's a very serious issue. You know, house owners can just put prices for houses that, uh, you know, very exorbitant um, prices for, 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 for houses, which is not logical at all. And also it's not only about the, the pricing, but also how the students are treated. So for example, in some, you see some apartments, house owners clearly write out there or say it publicly. We don't give houses to black students. We don't give houses to Nigerian students. We don't give houses to students from this particular country. So even within that sector, this unregulated sector, you see have a lot of discrimination happening there. And of course, um, there's labor exploitation. Many um, employers would prefer to employ um, students because they know these students will not get um, the working um, permits. You know they can the students they can you know pressure or coerce the students to work for very long hours for very little pay. So sometimes we have students working 
for 12 hours for maybe 20, um, 15 to 20 dollars if you have to convert it to the Turkish lira. You know, so we are talking of like sometimes even 14 hours for like almost 150 liras. 150 liras, I'm not sure how much that is, but I think a lira now is about nine dollars. So that should tell you, I mean, um, um, a dollar now is about nine liras. So that should tell you, student working for about 14 hours and getting maybe 15, 20 dollars a day. And in some cases, they don't even get paid. And when they go to the police, the police says, well, you're not supposed to work. And in fact, we have lobbied the Ministry of Labor to institute a law saying that students can have working permit and work for four hours. And this was work for four hours. So they are allowed to work for four hours. This And this was, was quite successful because this was instituted. But then the problem was that we suggested that students should be able to, you know, um, apply and get these working permits directly from the Ministry of Labor. But the Ministry of Labor has put it in such a way that only the employers can get this working permit for you. And what happens is the employers refuse. They simply say, well, we don't want to get a working permit. If you if you insist on me getting a working permit for you, then I'm not going to employ you. And I'm going to employ those people who are not going to put me under pressure. And because many of these students are vulnerable and need this and need a source of income, of course they are going to work without working permit. And then this leads to exploitation. And it is something which is really, really very um, rife. And then of course we have the issue of, as I said um, earlier, sexual violence and sexual abuse. And the, the problem with sexual violence and sexual abuse is that even within the student community, there is a high level of sexual um, violence against um, female students. We've received many complaints from, um, from girls and from women who have been um, victims or survivors of rape or other forms of, of sexual violence. But of course, it's not only within the student community, but also um, local students. And a lot of the time, or at least the pattern which we um, kind of saw in terms of like when it comes to the locals and um, being the perpetrators of, of this violence, is that it's mostly towards students of color. And um, students coming from Ukraine and, and Russia, you know, students come from Ukraine and Russia are a lot of them have, have told us that, you know, um, once we say we're from Ukraine or Russia, you know, um, we start getting on, on, on prison advances. And sometimes, you know, some of them have, have been um, physically um, abused. But of course, um, students coming from um, sub-Saharan Africa are particularly um, affected by this. And, and in fact, the head, the current head of our committee dealing with issues relating to, to, to gender abuse, to, to gender and sexual abuse herself had been, um, I would say, a survivor of, of this. She was not physically abused, but like verbally assaulted. Uh, and this is something she, she said publicly. So it's not information I should not be sharing. She, she said this publicly during one of our, our, our conferences. And um, so I think that these are the major issues that um, students are facing. But of course, COVID-19 has amplified these issues and, and, and the level of, I would say, um, if I could term it, poverty within the student population is really very high. Many students are really struggling um, to go by because a lot of them perhaps used to receive some form of support from their families, maybe not receiving the same amount of support or not receiving at all. And students who used to work here prior to COVID-19 have lost their jobs because um, some of these businesses have shut down or cannot employ the number of employees they had before because of um, the working hours are, are limited. And so there is a serious issue of, I'd say, hunger and poverty within the student community. Of course, it's not the same levels as it was at the end of 2020 or at the beginning of 2021, because a lot of 
the students are really very creative and are looking for ways to, you know, to be able to get some income for themselves. But of course, we've always complained to the universities that just giving a food package to a student doesn't change a student's life. Um, the universities and the administration needs to look for more a more structured and organized and sustainable way of providing support to these students during this period of COVID-19. So, of course, many of these challenges that you describe are, are quite systemic, but um, what do you think are maybe some of the primary solutions to these challenges? And you've kind of addressed this a little bit, but if you don't also mm-hmm. mind including how, how voice has also helped to address some of these issues. I think that um, the primary way that Voice is trying to address the issue is first by raising the awareness of the community about them. And um, I think that this is something that we've been able to do at least to, to, to a certain degree successfully over the last couple of months and years, because increasingly we see members of the local community um, being more aware about the challenges students are facing. I think that is very important because um, there was this cloud of, I would say, oblivion where um, things, students were facing these challenges and, um, you know, the members of the community were not aware and so they were not holding, I would say, administrators um, or public officials responsible. But at least now, even in some media sources, especially those media sources that are more left-leaning, um, you see a lot of them um, um, criticizing um, the government, but also some of the teachers' unions criticizing public officials and even the universities about the lack of, of, of care or duty, the lack of the duty of care um, being shown towards international students. I think that that was the primary thing we needed to do was to raise awareness about the challenges students are facing. And of course, this is an ongoing process, but also um, we think that the idea behind the, system, the higher education system in the northern part of Cyprus needs to be changed from this purely market-based, um, I would say, formula in terms of we just want to get the students here to get some form of fund or income for the state or whatever the right um, terminology is into a duty of care. Um, these universities need to be held accountable. There are lots of universities existing in the northern part of Cyprus that should not exist because they are not centers of learning. They are just centers for making money. In fact, we've had a couple of meetings now with the um, with UDAC, which is the Higher Education Board, and um, we sometimes give them a list of universities and say these universities are operating, and they say, well, um, we have not given them some form of certification. The certification comes from the Ministry of Education, whereas you, they are supposed to be certified from the Ministry of Education, and the courses they teach need to also be approved by UDAC, where a lot of them UDAC says we don't even approve that these universities exist, but because the Ministry of Education has already promised these business people and, and these business people claim that they have already built the universities and employed teachers, then it means it has to go ahead. And so this is a very serious issue because what is the administration doing to make sure that this charlatan universities do not exist. And it's because these charlatan universities exist that you have these agents who also exist who um, and the principal goal for this agency is simply to bring as many students as they can to these universities. And because these universities do not have this primary sense of care or value education in itself, and they are just money-making centers, they do not care the lengths to which these agents go to bring the students here. They simply say, well, we don't tell the agents what to say. But even when we say, okay, these agents need to be held accountable. So all the agents employed by the universities should be available online and a database should exist 
um, which basically shows the, the names of the students that they have brought here so that when this student complains, I was duped by my agent, I was misled by my agent, we at least know who is in charge of or who was responsible for that. But because this would mean that the universities may not get as many students as they would get if these agents are held responsible because then the agents would have to be careful with what to say because they don't want to be penalized. They turn a blind eye to our suggestions. They simply say, well, if we do it, the other universities are not going to do it and we are going to lose students. And we've suggested several times, okay, let it be a national policy, a policy which is not only one university, but the Ministry of Education, UDAC, and these universities. And we've tabled this to the Ministry of Education several times and to UDAC, but right up until now, um, nothing has been done about, about this. And if this is not tackled at its core, you're going to have this high level of level exploitation because many of the students, or there are many students we know come here, they just pay maybe 1,000 euros or maybe less to some of these universities. They get the student visa, they travel here, and then they start working I would say um, e uh, um, um, illegally and they exploit it. They exploit it whether it is sex trafficking or other forms of labor trafficking. But of course, we need policies that safeguard the rights of international students. We need um, legislation in place that safeguards the rights of international students. There is a particular case of access to healthcare where we have written a report and published identifying two discriminatory um, legislations regarding healthcare. So, for example, when it comes to organ um, transplantation, international students are very restricted the access and for that is restricted of course you have to either wait you either have to go on a waiting list or i mean the legislation says you can either be on a waiting list or um, a relative all right could provide this um this, I would say, the organ for you, um, for, for the said person. But with the case of international students, the legislation also says that that particular relative should have lived here for two years. And so the question which we asked, um, we asked this with the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Interior, and also um, one of the doctors who was in charge of, of putting in place this regulation is, which student comes to the northern part of Cyprus with their family to stay? And this is a peculiar case because a student died because of this. You know, we were able, there was a student who had a kidney failure and we we're able to raise money for the dialysis every week. And also we we're able to, to you know, get um, promises from donors um, like the Teachers Union of the Eastern Mediterranean University who said, we are willing to cover all the costs of the organ transplantation and, of course, the post, any post-surgery complications. So everything was in place. And we even did the test with the family of the student, the, the brother of the student who was back in Nigeria. Everything was in place. There was, there was a match and all that needed was for the person to be given a visa to come. And when we went to the hospital with the documents, then we're told, no, this person needs to have stayed in the northern part of Cyprus for two years. And it doesn't make any sense. You can't just rely on dialysis. So unfortunately, this student passed away and it was really a very sad incident. But of course, we've raised this issue and nothing has been done about it. There's also the issue of deportation. Students being deported, um, students living with HIV are deported. Um, but not only the deportation, but the conditions under which they are deported as well, um, which is something that we have raised that penalization and criminalization for people living with HIV is something of, of the past. We are no longer in the 1950s or 1960s and 1970s. Rather, they need to be provided with some level of support, both, of course, in terms of availability of the right, I'd say, medications, but also mental health support. And so for... Um, 
the response we've had from the administration is, oh, in the meetings we've had with them, they've clearly told us, no, we don't support. But then the next thing we see students writing to our emails, oh, I was supported last week. And when we take it to the administration, they say, oh, no, we, we for example, we take it to the Ministry of Interior. They say, we, we did not deport the student. Go to the Ministry of Health. We go to the Ministry of Health. They say, no, it's the Ministry of Interior. You go back to the Ministry of Interior. They say, no, please go to the, the Deputy Foreign Prime Minister. So there is this, you know, it's just, it's a whole lot of confusion because no one is taking accountability, but then the practices are still happening. So we need legislations in place that actually protect um, international students. Of course, not only in healthcare, but also labor conditions and housing. And currently, we are trying to um, define racism from the perspective of those who were living here. So we conducted a survey two months ago, asking students to um, highlight key terms that they would use, that they would prefer in in a definition of racism within the context of the northern part of Cyprus. And we got this, um, we've gotten the results and we are currently trying to, you know, look for patterns so that we can come up with a definition for racism or for what constitutes racism within the northern part of, of Cyprus. And our aim is to, in fact, this is something we are already working on. We um, we are part of the anti-racism network, which we created along with Queer Cyprus and the Refugee Rights Association and the um, journalists, um, association to criminalize um, um, racism because currently hate speech is criminalized, but only um, with regards to um, the LGBTI um, community, but not with regards to racism. So we want this to be part of the of the legislation so that uh, hate speech vis-a-vis um, racism is also um, um, prohibited. So I would say generally, of course, we want legislations in place increase in, in awareness about the challenges that students are facing. But of course, we also want students um, to take more control of their own lives, to be more accountable for some of the actions that they, they involve themselves in. And so it's a two-way street. And I would say the last thing in terms of solutions is we need students to be integrated within the local community. Some of the students do graduate and then um, you graduate from universities here, for example, and then you are unable to find any jobs whatsoever because the, the whole idea and the attitude is you are supposed to graduate and leave. And luckily enough, I wouldn't say luckily, I would say that because we've been talking about this so much. We have some teachers now from some of the major universities who are saying that if we teach the students and they're unable to get jobs here, then there is a problem with our teaching methods, there is a problem with the higher education sector in general. And so that is one other thing that which that we think that um, needs to, to happen as well. Students need to be integrated within the, the, the local um, community. I hope this um, answers your question in terms of solutions. I'm trying to provide more general solutions rather than very specific ones. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you and your colleagues at Voice are really doing very, very vital and interesting work for, for international. Just, just to come in here, let's, let's, there's been so much great stuff here, Emmanuel, but I think we're trying to keep it to 35 to 40 minutes. So let's end on a strong, quick note. Sure. Okay. Because I think we're basically, I mean, Emmanuel's given us a lot of content. So I think we're yeah. good in this space. Uh, okay. But let's, yeah, a, a short, quick note. Uh, Emmanuel, thanks. It's been really interesting so far. Before we close up, 
could you talk a little bit about your own work? I'm specifically for my PhD um, dissertation, I'm focusing specifically on um, the concept of voluntary repatriation. And I am basically arguing in my dissertation that, um, of course, the concept of voluntary repatriation is unique to the African system of of refugee protection. And it is, um, I would say, um, increasingly, given recent, I would say, XCOM um, decisions by the UNHCR, would see that the practice of voluntary repatriation is increasingly becoming part of the norm of of international refugee protection, but it is quite unique to the African system. But I'm not only saying that it is unique to the African system, I'm also arguing as well that there are inconsistencies in the practice of voluntary repatriation within the African system. But even more importantly, the concept of voluntary repatriation, I argue in my dissertation, contradicts one of the core constitutive principles of um, international society, which is asylum, providing um, protection for asylum seekers and because the concept of voluntary repatriation came out of, of course, within the African um, system in the, nine, in the early 1960s, out of concern principally for state security and not refugees per se. So the, 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 the conditions, the political conditions under which the concept came to exist are questionable. And if, as I argue in my dissertation, if we understand law not only as a set of rules, but law as a process of authoritative decision-making processes, law as this congruence between power and politics, law as ever-changing, law as, as, as a social process, then we have to realize as well that even though voluntary repatriation is, is, is hard law, it is instituted within um, the 19, um, the African Convention on Refugees, because its origins are questionable and because it goes against the core constitutive principle of international society, which is asylum, then it needs to be reevaluated. And on a more general sense, I also, um, or at least I intend to conclude based on some of the evidence that I have currently, that refugee protection internationally has been securitized. So the state system which we have sees refugees as a problem rather than trying to deal with the problems refugees are facing. And we see it a lot even in the rhetoric that is being used. We see the reference to the refugee problem, to the refugee crisis, and never to the problems of refugees and how these problems can be can be solved. And that explains why a lot of the legislation that we we have dealing with the protection of refugees internationally does not really protect refugees, but rather makes it harder for asylum seekers to, to, to get the status of refugees. And of course, I try to argue that the 1951 convention and its 1967 protocol also needs to be reevaluated. But I also am conscious of the fact that given the rise in nationalism and populism today, and given the measures that states are currently taking to restrict the number of asylum seekers into the borders and offer protection, um, any opening whatsoever that states are given to renegotiate the 1951 convention and its 1967 protocol may instead lead to um, less protection for refugees rather than more protection for refugees. So I think um, I'm brave that is kind of like the idea I am or what I am working on. I think that this this inspires a lot of, of a lot of the work that I do because it's it's a human rights um, issue and I think that it is just I would say this affinity to, to human rights that also inspires a lot of my work in Voice Cyprus, but also in um, 
they stop the war coalition in, in, in Cameroon as well, because I think I generally um, believe that human rights um, should take precedence over sovereignty, of course, which is very utopic, but that is what I believe in. And I think that is what inspires uh, me the most. I'm very honored to have been invited to come on this on podcast, of course, to talk about uh, migration in the northern part of Cyprus, but also about the workforce Cyprus is doing and um, my thesis. And I'm very, I would say, grateful to Project Phoenix, especially for the support that you have provided um, for Cyprus. I know, for example, that the head of our research department has worked with Project Phoenix on the problems of our uh, refugees um, as a result of COVID-19. I saw the, the latest report that um, was, was was published. In fact, Sarah, I had seen it online, but then Sarah emailed it again as well. So thank you for, for reminding me that I had to read it. Um, but also, I'm really very happy that um, Project Phoenix will be working with us in the future on this EU project, which we applied for. Um, I think that is all I have to say. But thank you guys very much for the work you are doing and for this podcast and for allowing migrants to have a voice. Thank you so much for sharing with us about your important work, Emmanuel. And and thank you for your time. I know you're very busy right now, but um, best of luck with, with your work at Voice and, and on your PhD. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.